0: Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Finance Focus Industry Insight podcast. I'm joined by Katie today. Katie, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm excited to have a chat with you.
0: Likewise. Um, well, as we always begin with, uh, with our guests, what do you do and, uh, you know, what's your background?
1: So I've always worked in the equity side of the financial markets and most recently as a portfolio manager and a trader at one of the world's largest investment managers um, and I started my career in 2008 and um, how much detail would you like for me to go into I guess I mean, ordinarily I would sort of, yeah, skip over the earlier, start, I, earlier parts of my career but given the audience that's probably the bit that's most interesting.
0: I, I, we We like everything so go ahead and <laughs> elaborate as much as you'd like to.
1: Okay, so um, I always wanted to work in the city, and um, I'm sure many of your listeners probably feel the same, and um, probably think it was very aspirational for reasons that maybe, well, the industry probably is very different now to what we were seeing many, many, many years ago, or that Wall Street depicted. Um, but just thinking, there's just a world of opportunity, and what an amazing place to work if you if you enjoy numbers, um, and I certainly did. So, and and it was a challenge because I knew they were quite hard to get into. So I thought, right, I want to work on a training floor and an investment back. Um, and so in 2008, um, I applied everywhere, all the big graduate programmes. Um, and there was only about 10 to 12, really, and highly competitive. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get a place on the Credit Suisse graduate programme. Um, and it was meant to be rotational um but we all did our training fantastic program in London all the students oh, apologies that on my phone and um, let me turn it on sun. all the students from um, all the graduates came over to to study together in London a long summer program and all from Asia from the US and Europe and then unfortunately as we finished our training and we landed on the desk it was September 2008 um and we all came in one morning and it was you yeah, know we had a big, big Bloomberg chat um, and it was bye guys, it's been nice knowing you. It wasn't for long. And unfortunately, just all the head sort have gone um, and so People didn't even get a chance really to start on their desk. Um, but London was more fortunate and, and a lot of us survived. And um, but you were sort of, I think, if I remember it correctly, you were, you became part of the desk headcount. You weren't um, a, sort of on rotation anymore. And so I was on the algorithmic training desk and they were doing really well because a lot of the, well, a huge all the prime uh prime clients from Lehman Brothers, um which have just collapsed, um, obviously had to go so- elsewhere. And so Credit Suisse fit a, a very nice profile of seemingly less risky um, with a solid prime business. And a lot of those clients would then uh use the credit Suisse prime brokerage and execute via our algorithmic train desk. So um yeah week one it was just the phones are ringing off the hook and you know deal board lighting up and I don't even know how to use the deal board and I remember picking up trying to help out and um, picking up my first client call and cutting them off and it just yeah the clients go mad and colleagues are really yeah, it was it was hectic and some of them were quite firm and don't do that again and <laughs> don't pick it up when you don't know what you're doing but others were just like I'm gonna teach you once and teach twice now now do it I mean, if you don't know how to do something, just say. Um, and so it was sort of a baptism of fire, but brilliant place to be. Um, learning how to trade, not just sort of the cash, high touch, high touch way methodology, but actually using the algorithms and dark pools were sort of at their sort of just not being created, but really at the height of their intrigue and a new liquidity source. And Credit Suisse were pioneers for that, so um, it was a great place to start out um, and working with clients and just being the buzz and trading floor. Um, and then a few headhunters started calling because our desk was sort of well-regarded across the industry. Um, and I ended up moving to Namura and um, to help build out their desk post Lehman's because Nomura had built the European Lehman's arm and Barclays had bought the US Lehman's arm. Um, and so that was, Quite similar, but just seeing more clients, quite a bit more travel, as well as the day to day sales trading. Um, and then hired to also a couple of years later to do a similar thing at Macquarie. And um, so I ended up working for a Swiss bank, two Asian investment banks, and um, never a US house until I then, um, about that point, had my first child. And as I was coming off of maternity leave, um, the large US asset manager contacted me, and um, with a view to hiring me. And um, I'd sort of considered that maybe moving to the buy side, so moving to the client side where they manage the money, um, rather than the sell side, might actually be better balanced with children um, and balancing family life. And one of the favorite parts of my job was working with my clients, and they all said, "Come to the buy side. It's really different. Come to the buy side." So. Um, I was always going to go along for the interview, um, just to see, just just to get my first sort of experience of interviewing on the buy side. Um, But it ended up being about thirteen or fourteen interviews, and yeah, they they also offering the chance to their desk was quite unusual in that it wasn't segregated between um, investment managers, so PMs and traders. Um, They did it; it was all combined, Um, and so it was just a great opportunity to not be losing my trading and skills and my love for that, but also be learning to manage the funds as well, not just trading and executing. So um, that's where I was for a number of years, and um, always in equity, like I said, um, and so a good mix of sort of firms from around the world. Um, I've never worked for a hedge fund though. I think I'd quite like to experience that. I've always uncovered clients from different parts of the industry, including hedge funds, um, and that always holds a bit of an to me um
0: but who knows who knows what the future holds right well it's a very comprehensive overview which i really enjoyed listening to um you seem to be someone who's driven by challenge or or perceived challenges i mean to go into trading at the time of the 2008 financial crisis seems like a really difficult thing to do you mentioned a little bit about it. What was, you know, this is something that you, it's hard to learn training as, trading as it is, but then to do it in that period, could you talk a little bit about what that was like more specifically? Um, and you said some people were firm and whatnot, but was it like an accelerated learning process where the days where you're like, this is overwhelming? You know, what was it like?
1: Yeah, I think with anything, for me, and I don't know if everyone finds this, but to learn it hypothetically sort of on your summer, program of training I found quite hard once you're actually immersed in it though yeah a day I found was worth sort of weeks of actually studying it theoretically um uh yeah it was tough I've definitely seen people just walk out have to gather themselves a few people cry some people sort of kick the machines under their desks um uh some people I think definitely played up to that as well and loved sort of being able to be somewhere where they could embrace all the emotions they were feeling um, and you know, they became quite uh, quite a lot of characters who who really embodied that. Um, and the days, yeah, the days were t- tough and long. You know, the active markets in, in Europe were opening up at eight. Sometimes we'd have emerging markets there and they opened even earlier depending on the time zone. Um, and the market was shutting at four thirty-five, um, but you'd have a lot of post-market um, activity and things to do. Um, so yeah, it was very long days. But I just found they went so quickly i um, and really, really loved it. I mean, I'm older now, so maybe I just find it absolutely exhausting. But um, I think if it's something you really want to do and you're surrounded, you know, I've, I've got to acknowledge that's the people you're working with as well. Um, and I think that if you were with people who sort of didn't want you to be there or felt that you were a drain on on the cost centre of the desk or that you didn't have any potential, then yeah, they might unfairly write you off and not make your life particularly easy. Um I think back then there may have been sort of not an initiation process, not at all, but you know, sort of, we need to test to see what this person's made of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there would be coffee runs on top of things um, and don't get it wrong or, you know, you're given a bit of a joke order as a bit of a test, but I really, yeah, also part of me often thought that, well, if they really didn't want you there, they would, they would just ignore you and sometimes some of these things you do to get their coffee yeah they'd then be like oh let me come with you let me come with you and yeah it was <laughs> you then form a bit of a bond in that way um but also I think now I think the sort of the approach to developing new you know they call it talent now um is very very different to 2008 um yeah when banks were going under so it was sort of how they were treating me was just an afterthought it was you're either going to be useful to this desk or you're not and whereas now I think there's just as with the world generally there's a lot more um yeah you do you do things the right way when you interact with people and that's that's true of summer interns graduates uh, from what I've seen in in finance firms now
0: and so we you spoke a bit about the kind of the perception people have of trading and I've not had a lot of traders on what was the perception you had of trading what it was actually like and then do you think it's changed i hear i hear from certain traders that it has changed in the last 20 years or so do you do you feel that change
1: yeah so i think it depends a lot on the aspect of trading how the markets are at the time and um, whether you're a sales trader so whether you're agency whether you're prop and the nature of the firm you're working in and um, in terms of what you've heard in terms of it's changed over 20 years i definitely agree and um, so I've been doing it since what 2008 to 13 years I always worked in a very tech heavy part of the the extra trading market Um, whereas there was still a lot of voice breaking um, and there, there still is but um, in parts of the market but just the use of technology has just gotten yeah it's just so prevalent now that um, it means that there doesn't need to be shouting across the desks or whatever because you've all got yeah you can all see the orders first of all on the screens and um there's just so much information available and you've got instant messages and um so it's just quieter and I I know that one of the firms I worked with that um a journalist came in to interview people and the (laughs) the actual write-up in the paper was it was like a library and so that yeah and it really was so quiet um and so that would not m- match up to what many people's perceptions of of a trading floor um sh- would they would expect it to be like and um, now obviously with remote working you know your, your trading floor is is your lounge or your your home office or your bedroom so um it yeah it really has changed and i think it's it's usually technology that's driving that change
0: i see and um, in terms of what is it I mean you're smiling as you're speaking about your job so I assume you enjoy it and you're still doing it 13 years on albeit a slightly different role but in terms of trading I I know a few traders and they strike me as a particular type of people but I'd like to get your opinion on it what do you think appeals to certain people about trading and what's appealed to about you and then on top of that what kind of skills do you think make a good trader Um, yeah yeah. right so
1: what appeals So when I was on the sell side, I worked with so many different types of clients. So sovereign wealth funds, the dealing desk there, hedge funds, private banks, um, big institutions, um, brokers, because we would often provide algorithms that brokers would would be trading their client flow using. Um, And so all manner of people, and I I wouldn't say there's any one particular profile, but the skills that are really sort of common to all is that just highly analytical, um like to have things stay quite interesting day on day but to build sort of a skill set underneath um and often they're independent thinkers um and problem solvers um but I think the key thing you, you probably can't go into this role without um being highly numerate mm-hmm. um what appeals I think. Again, it sort of depends where where they're working, where people end up working. But um, some people end up working in hedge funds in sort of uh, tax-favorable cities. And obviously, I think the thing that's driving them is is the money, um, is the chance to get paid very, very well um, and often at a very young age. Um, But I think if it is just the money, it probably won't keep you in it because this market has been volatile, as I think all industries are. Um, you could be worth, yeah, you know, I would learned from somebody who said they have only ever worked in down markets and they listed sort of when they worked and I can't remember what it was, it was sort of like the Asian market crisis, the tech um, bubble bursting. It was like wherever they found themselves, it was always just as things were crashing. Um, and so they, I think they were, you know, well paid relatively, but never enough to be on a yacht and with, you know, like a house in the Hamptons and living like living like Jordan Belfort um, I think that's his name Wall Street isn't it but um but still he loved it and so he was staying in, in the industry and um, so yeah I don't think if you're going just for the money I, I can understand why but I don't think that'll be an, it won't keep you in because the money's not all there so you've just still got to be enjoying it
0: yeah definitely I think one thing we try and emphasize or the people my um, guests often emphasize is they, the reasons that they have had longevity in in their professions is because they really enjoy the day to day of what they do by and large and it's yes. um, yeah and and the the tasks of that their job demands they actually enjoy doing, and there aren't too many days where they absolutely despise what they do and obviously when you deal with when you deal with markets, I think you know there's always a correlation between your mood and and how the markets are going but
1: yeah, I once went to see a physio having um back problem. And the questions he asked at the start was, oh, you're a trader. So what What are you trading? How's it going? How's that market doing? And you know, why are you asking? Yeah, I, I thought he wanted some investment advice. Um, and then he said, no, no, I get a lot because he's based in London. He said, I get a lot of people from the city or from can- Canary Wharf. And it's often um their back pain coincides with you know they, their funds not doing so well or it's bonus time and they're a bit stressed about it. And um, so, yeah, it, it can take its toll. And so you've got to really enjoy the day-to-day and I think the people around you can really really make a difference in that regard Um, and the industry's full of some really great people and like I said I think it does encourage independent thinkers and that can be really interesting to be working with people like that.
0: You mentioned being highly numerate what did you study as your degree?
1: And so i started management science um, and so it had a lot of statistics and um, and sort of like data analysis i think that's what appealed when i was being hired and, and picked for the particularly the desk. i put it to this because i do remember them asking me some questions on statistics um but i don't think i don't say you really need that you know i've worked with a few people who had um bachelor of arts degrees and um, but if they had work experiences and that sort of prove their interest in the industry or they manage their own like virtual fund or something like that. And then you throw in crypto into things now, and crypto and ESG, and environmental and social governance. So these are, these are different sides of the industry that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you need to have an economics degree to prove that you should be working in those parts of the industry.
0: Definitely, I I think I, I've seen a, a massive transition, even as i've been doing internships you you go into it with people and you ask what they do and there's fewer and fewer people saying i do finance or economics or whatever um people are realizing i guess the value of soft skills and i i guess with you know these spring insight weeks and then summer you can get in so early now that you can actually build up quite a strong experience base which which is a sign of enthusiasm if you will to your potential employers
1: Definitely, and, and employers now, I think, across industries, but they're they're looking for they they understand the value of diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. and you've got income no, you've got the, the disruptors to industries as well, like the fintech side of say finance. And it's they would be hiring, using yeah, use all the buzzwords, but like out, outside the box, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, they're looking to hire a very different type, or they have a different approach to hiring as to traditional investment banks. I think investment banks—they're they're smart in terms, of, and they spend a lot of money on recruitment, and they don't want to lose good talent because they are—they are only looking for the same type of profile that they've—they've they've looked for for the last ten years. So, you know, things are definitely, definitely uh, always moving forward. Are they not changing? Um, and so that's something I just mentioned actually on the ESG side of things. So. Um, Of impact investing, like values based investing, has just taken off so, so quickly. It's been like a hockey stick in terms of a few years ago, only a a small number of houses were offering it and talking about it, to now just being a a lack of expertise across the industry, really. I think every headhunter is looking for people with an ESG background. Um, And that, you know, that that really does change. If, If you think your client base are changing in terms of what they want, it's not just. What are my returns on this fund? It's also how my impact in the world, long-term effects on the future, as well as returns. Then, if your client's sort of preferences and client profiles changing, then naturally, potentially the people you want managing that money and trading for those funds might be a bit different as well.
0: For sure. And is that ESG sentiment something that you've had to incorporate into your work now?
1: Um, so it's definitely been growing. Um, I think it depends on what house you've been at and. Whether they launch those products um, and how quickly they get them to market, or well, if they've always had a history in it, um, but so you know, it's definitely at the the front of of a lot of houses' offerings. Um, but I think that's that's often a risk: is that with anything, they, there can be a bit of a a bubble, and the, those that are offering it with with true expertise um, can often get then it becomes a bit of a crowded space with Others, yeah, it's having a bit of a bog standard fund offering and then just slapping an ESG brand over it or mm-hmm. something loosely to do with ESG. It doesn't form that well. And then that impacts the sort of whole industry's reputation and and returns. Um, and also, like with anything, actually, when there's a crowd, when people crowd into an asset class, okay, fundamentally the stocks say we're talking about stocks, stocks, the stocks actually haven't changed, but the price has just driven up. So then the funds return could actually would actually be less than it ordinarily would have been um, and i read something last week i think it was a french institute said that they've been studying in terms of the funds and potentially it looked like although the returns are still an outperformance, but they they've maybe reached an inflection point so um well uh, that's definitely one to pay attention to if if your sort of listeners are looking to get into a part of the market that is That is growing and if there's a genuine interest of theirs you know
0: yeah a lot of my work experience was around ESG I was at a large asset manager and they were pushing 100% ESG integration by the end of the year which they ended up doing but I definitely saw a mixture of sentiment from the portfolio managers who were some of them were I think the older they were the more skeptical they were which might just be a a thing that happens but they were definitely uh cautious of the fact that these metrics well some of them have very poor correlation with one another anyway um and also they were just afraid of the things you're mentioning like asset class inflation um equities being overpriced based on some metrics that you don't know actually there's no sh- historical relationship between them and and performance um, particularly, I think, with, like, the social side of things. But I guess as society changes its sentiment on a lot of these things, um, as, as, you know, asset managers are client-driven people, they will have to incorporate it in one way or another. Um,
1: yeah, and yeah. I, I think the client demand is going to be huge. And, you know, if you, if you think of a, a fintech, you know, sort of like a wealth uh, management app on, on people's phones, if they make it very easy to invest and they bring investments to a demographic that previously thought sort of wealth management was out of their reach and um one of the prime offer- primary offerings is sort of impact values based investing and that just appeals then the proliferation could could go through the roof and um, but yes, yeah, then the those who are sort of maybe wise or have seen bubbles before and if they then you know, understand that okay there tend to be asset price bubbles then neither's wrong are they it's just you just want to see how it how it plays out
0: yeah definitely and I mean if we're talking about the ease of investing as a as a concept you know we've seen a, a huge allocation of funds going from the active side to the passive side in the last <laughs> few years you see a lot of you know a lot of fund managers really like to talk about you know their AUM and how big it is um, but they don't like to talk about perhaps how many basis points they get to charge on all that new money because a lot of it's into etfs you know we we cherry pick the numbers i guess that we uh, that we tell our you know our board members or the general public what are your thoughts on the 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 battle if you want to call it that between active and passive and i guess actually one of the things that interested in me was over covid um people thought that this would be the time where active managers would show would be a clear way of them showing their ability to outperform uh just the various indexes as they do badly in the downturn but unfortunately not everyone was able to demonstrate that skill and the skepticism around it increase a little bit so what are your some of your perhaps more experienced thoughts on on that
1: um so well so on the transparency side of things i think all asset managers worth their salt they yeah they are transparent on their fees but yeah i think it um it is maybe quite appealing to investors to think, "Oh, I'm going to go with a star fund manager. I'm going to outperform. That's going to, I can retire now." And um, versus sort of the the concept of lower fees over a long period of time, even if the performance isn't the, the potential for vast uh, impressive returns, then it's harder to maybe. Comprehend that actually sort of slow and steady will win the marathon, even if not the race. Um, but so no, I think they're all they're all transparent. You know, I don't think anyone's putting wool over anyone's guys. Um, but um, so passive versus active. Um, I agree with what you're saying, actually, that usually, well, often in times of disaster, um, there can be huge winners, but I'm not certain that we've seen that from active managers, or there's certainly been some sort of high profile um that's uh, funds that haven't performed well during this time and there's one hedge fund one British hedge fund that made quite big bets on the airline recovery and maybe they're just too early but it certainly hasn't happened and so they've seen vast outflows and um, so but in terms of passive versus active now i mean i think there's always going to be those that believe that they can outperform um, and you're always going to hear headlines about those who who have outperformed, and then people it's just human nature to think oh i want a piece of that and um, but we have to remember that there's survivorship bias there you know you don't hear about the ones in in the pool of data that they didn't even make into the population of data because they they failed three years ago and um, passive i mean i've worked yeah that's where i've come from the passive space and and um, Okay. anyone who wants to learn more about it read jack vogel's um theory on passive and sort of being the the founding of the passive investment movement um and i think he just made it so simple to understand um and i you know i think there's probably in people's investment photos there's room for both so potentially consider both just like you would in sort of diversification is all valuable in any portfolio and um, and you know that that goes from the more sedate side of investing to also the you know the the more alternative side and if cryptos you know if you can afford to lose and cryptos is something that you want to get involved in then you know who knows who's anyone to say that that is not going to be um something valuable and to get involved in you know for the future i think People back in two thousand and seventeen, when I was talking about it, were definitely sneering at me or making points that you know certain big asset managers across the world have banned their employees from getting involved in crypto, and um, because it was too reckless, etc. Um, and you know then I was I was a hodler, so hold on for dear life is what we are called hodlers. Um, and then three years later I was sort of getting messages saying oh because then it collapsed so you know I'm glossing over the fact that it was a disaster and I was too embarrassed to look at it for three years um, and then it recovered and I was getting messages from people you know coming out the woodwork saying did you hodl did you hodl and I said yes I did and um, um, but now it's now it's collapsed again a bit so timing <laughs> okay, timing's everything um, and that's that's where you've also got to consider sort of long-term investing? Is it shorter term? And this is where passive the, the Jack Bowl's and philosophy is just invest in an index fund and don't look at it for 40 years and then open it up and see where it is. And that you're not going to get crazy outperformance, but you should be in line with the market and you're paying lower fees. Um and that is what he believes will win the race. And data is there to back that up. Um so yeah there we go that's passive versus active I don't really have one preference for
0: either um yeah <laughs> definitely a very diplomatic answer I should say but no <laughs> I I take the the points you make uh, often the best arguments are ones that take value from both sides um but, but then I guess you've you've also moved from one side of the industry to another and I guess your role has changed slightly have you seen an evolution in what you actually have to do on a day-to-day basis is there things you now do that you didn't used to and also you're like well actually i really enjoy this aspect of my new job
1: yeah so um when i first asked i think there was a lot more um you know on your headset voice you know, talking to clients shouting across the floor to someone who trades and um, a different, you know, emerging markets, etc., that maybe we couldn't trade by our algorithms. So we had to do cash high-touch sales trading uh, with them for our client um, to then, and a lot became much more on messenger or Bloomberg chat or straight through sort of order processing, or often clients would, would yeah, interact with the algorithms themselves on their desks and say bypass us completely unless there was a problem. Um back then there was a lot of, in uh, face-to-face client entertainment. And then okay, that sort of that that's changed and probably even more so now that you know people couldn't meet face to face. Um so well, I think again technology's been the main driver and then a huge thing like COVID, um which just creates huge sort of structural change to the entire society, economy, the, just the fabric of what we're working with and in. Um, and so I think now it's more, sort of, yeah, if you're looking at staff inclusion, how how do you do that now? In the old days, it was, the old days, you know, it was ridiculous point the old days, but it would be, yeah we'll go out for a team lunch or a team dinner. Whereas now, can you do that? So how do you get, how do you include people and then make them feel part of a team? Um, technology, is it resilient enough for everyone to be using it from home? Um, regulatory requirements change as well and change how we do things. So um, there's been so many drivers and I think the change happens without you often realizing. Um and it's just so steady and you you don't re- yeah, you don't realise that maybe that was the last time you were going to do something for a particular client who you really love talking to, but you you, know, you never know it's gonna be the last time, so you sort of don't value it. And then maybe you know, six months later you think, oh, I really I really miss doing that. Um, but what do I what do I do that was a bit different that I started enjoying more? Um, I think very, yeah, I love travel. I love traveling to my clients and obviously you can't do that as much. Um, so that is something that like, don't, you know, that, that's disappointing to me. Um, the things that I enjoy that I didn't do before, I'm trying to think because I, I just enjoy every, all of it There's nothing in particular, um, but I think, you know, being able to work from home and having things that you've got more time to just consider things without that noise that was just, you know, always the hubbub, which could be great, but just having the time to just think and gather thoughts and, and really like reflect on what you're doing, I think that's been probably valuable to many, many people across the industry.
0: Definitely. Um, and then I guess as we come towards the end of what we're saying, there's, a, there's an aspect that you mentioned quite early on, but it's also quite obvious to my listeners, hopefully. Your use, you are a woman in, I guess, what is typically considered quite a male-dominated um, space, especially within finance, I guess, trading. How have you found that, um, as in as much as you can speak to it, you also mentioned starting a family and having children and and then coming back from maternity leave and then going back into work, is that, you know, I obviously this isn't an experience I can directly relate with, but I'm sure some of my listeners would love to hear what it's been like for you.
1: Yeah, Um. so I think, I'll say now, I think it's a very different world in terms of, even if you just look at, you know, maybe it was uh, less females previously because there were less females coming into the industry. Whereas now it's, if you look at a graduate program or summer internship program, it's so evenly split. Um. So I think um in the more uh, entry levels, you probably wouldn't notice it as being much different from say the university life or your school life um and so I think it's now when it's you get further up and, and women leave you know to go on return to leave and it's how supportive are companies when they come back um, and it's it's hard to generalize because I think there are some companies that talk the talk but don't necessarily walk the walk or culturally they can think they're brilliant and they have all the right policies in place, but if their culture also allows sort of managers to just behave quite unilaterally um, and gets away with anything, then you know that it's, it's the people you work with that can make all the difference. Um, and I don't want people you know, listening to think that it's it's men that are the big bad wolves. You know, I've worked some, with some fantastic men and some women who really could learn a thing or two on sort of supporting other women. Um, but I do think there's been huge amounts of positive, positive change now. There's also loads of activism in the space, which there really, you know, there wasn't before. You couldn't really be, yeah, if you were an activist <laughs> in, in probably a lot of industries a few years ago, it'd be, you know, uh, there's a door. Um whereas now it's, I think industry companies, they want to do the right thing as well. Um, and maybe working will will help. Um and yeah, for me, I think you know, not having to do that commute all the time, and worry about my son's here, where's my daughter, you know, school, nursery, nannies, etc. Um, but then I think maybe the downside to to um, home working and homeschooling is, you know, who's that burden fallen on the most? And so maybe some some people have felt that it's been a bit of a step backwards. And there's a lot of activists in that in the space in in that regard. And talk about it's a lot better than I can. But um, I think it's the people you work with, and you know what? If you find yourself working with people who aren't supportive, then they're probably not going to last that long. People will spot it. But there's pro- there's hopefully a culture that will support you, and you can you know you can sort of try and remedy it. But if not, you know, don't think it's the end of the world. There are places out there that will like like someone wants you in the first place. They will probably kill to hire you and think, wow, this other company doesn't know what they're losing here. Um, and just you've got to keep working somewhere where you're enjoying it because I think that's the most important thing.
0: Great I think that's a very positive outlook I can definitely say that the internships I've done we've had uh, nearly equal boys and uh, girls you know we were quite young at the time Um, but I like certain desks still remain quite male dominated I remember the US credit desk like I don't think there was any women on that desk but actually my line manager and my like my buddy or whatever were both women. And, and that was really promising to see that she was, you know, in a a position where she was doing all the things that she wanted to do regarding her family life, but also really enjoying her role and really performing really well. I think the value it it seems to be, there's now people are realizing the value, like you said, of diversity, whether, whether it be gender, race, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, And that's a really positive thing to see. Definitely. But you also, you mentioned being an activist slightly. I mean, you were an activist of sorts with your kind of website finance interns. Do you just want to speak a little bit about that? What what was it that prompted you to try and help young people get into the profession?
1: Yeah, so um so we yeah, haven't actually about that, have we? I've been talking too much. Um but so back in 2010, um, so I'd been in the industry for two years and I just thought, do you know, there's people whenever I do the um the graduate um sort of uh evenings where you'd meet promising graduates and they were just so desperate to speak to you and you know if they want if they could get your business card it was like oh they were walking away with a trophy and i just thought I sh- it shouldn't it shouldn't be like this you know there should be so much more available to them of and you know, they had they'd have quite simple questions of you know, I'm desperate to work for this investment bank um, but I'm not really sure where I want to, to work. And you'd say, okay, do you want sales and trading or do you want investment banking? And they think, well, what's the difference? Can you just tell me, what will I be doing day to day that's the difference? And so I just started a website and it had a blog on it. And it was, it was, yeah, I think my first article on there was the anatomy of an investment bank, just to help anyone who was you know, who was Googling, just to find out, okay, this, is, this would be what it would be if I worked in prime breakage versus if I worked in operations, if I worked in sales. Um, and then I'd get emails directly saying, Can I have this CV help or can you come and speak to my friends? I remember you couldn't do everything virtually, yeah, <laughs> it makes me sound really old, and um, but you couldn't do everything just remotely. And so it was okay, invite me to your university and let's do it formally that way. And so that then sort of grew, and um, the website grew. I started offering workshops, but we all sort of had to do it in person, either hosted by the university or and um, students paying sort of like a minimum amount because I just wanted it to be that this is open to everyone it doesn't matter your background um, and so it was it's not who you know it's what you know was the was the byline and um, and and that was also because I found myself in a lot of graduate programs with people who got in because you know they they had relatives there etc and I thought it shouldn't have to be like this and um, and then um we ended up getting Quite a nice reputation, um, invited back by universities and students, you know, recommending us to their friends. And we had other industry speakers come to our events. Um, and then, tragically, there was an intern and um, Maurice Earhart, um, and he was working in London at Bank of America Merrill Lynch one summer. Um, and he was found, he had passed away in the, in the sort of uh, official uh, Bama residences. Um, and it was it was headline news, just tragic as a view of you know how he's been worked to death. And so um, finance interns was approached by the BBC, by Channel Four, um, the Voice of Russia, Ghana Today, just globally, with our sort of view on it because we were called finance interns and we had a, a strong voice uh, advocating for young people getting into finance. Um, and at that point, you know, I really, I was calling for an industry body like funded by the, the big banks, et cetera, that could be an independent of sort of group where uh, young people working in the industry desperate for the jobs and felt like, oh, we can't really complain and say that we're working 20 hours a day. And you know, we can't really complain and say that to HR and don't want to jeopardize our jobs, but maybe they could come to us and we could advocate for them and um, to the investment banks. And but this was this was 2011, I think it was 2012, um, and yeah, you know, back then I was having to do a lot of it anonymously. And you know, Channel Four approached me, and I had to speak to them anonymously. And you know, I, I had visions of the 50 trading floors across uh, the tr- 50 TVs across the trading floors of the investment bank I worked at. Suddenly yeah, flashing my image up, me speaking, saying the industry's terrible, you know, (laughs) yeah, back then it just wouldn't have, I probably would have lost my job, so it was a, it was a shame because it was a pivotal time when we could really do good, but back then the the world wasn't, you know, everyone's, people are encouraged to be activists now, and it it was a bit more discouraged then, and, and also it was, it was hugely tragic, and just remembering this was someone's son, and that yeah, okay. We maybe can't because I have to be anonymous. We can't achieve a positive uh, outcome from this in terms of you know protecting other young people. But what I can now sell some more some more workshops and yeah, you know, VCs are interested in getting us into their accelerators, and maybe making this sort of a, a job hub for the future and a bit of a like in the in the sort of recruitment tech space. And it was I don't really feel comfortable having a a financially positive outcome and a reputation positive outcome for me but actually not being able to do what I set out to to do at the start which was improve this industry and make it more accessible to all but but safely to all Um, and so yeah it's just a bit of a shame whereas now what you guys are doing you're just at the optimum time and what you're doing is incredibly similar and you're doing it fantastically and you've got huge reach and and now, yeah, I think it'd be encouraged. People would want to recruit you, knowing that you're you're doing this, rather well, than it being something that. Okay, when I moved to one of the firms I worked at, they loved talking about it at the recruitment stage. But then, you know, it's an outside business interest, and you have to declare that, and there's very strict limitations on what you can do. So I had to archive the site. Um. So it was it was a bit of a shame. It was just wrong timing, but there's you know there's, hopefully, it did its little bit on the on the way to help shape the industry and what you guys are doing now. You've got a fantastic platform, and and who knows what positive change you can bring.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, firstly, I'd like to say I I think that's hugely admirable to not only do some a job which most people find really really difficult, but then on top of that, feel enough compassion for young people to then try and improve the industry for them. And it's a shame that you like you said, you know, you were slightly ahead of your time in a sense. But like like the industry is catching up now, which is nice. And the reason I do this podcast and we do finance focus is to add transparency and, and allow people to find the best fit for them within finance. And even if finance is not the fit for them, uh, rather than have to go through some of those uh, difficult things that we we were talking about, I, I I agree with everything you've said, to be honest. Um, And then as someone who, has those sentiments if we were uh, uh, you know we're coming to the end of the show if I wanted to ask you if you had a piece of advice perhaps for for young people entering finance now or the workspace if you could give them your kind of you know your, your elevator pitch for finance what would it be
1: um just come into it as an independent thinker and retain that don't sort of just end up you know, you've been, you've been hired probably you're bringing that and people can see that in you. If you then come into a workplace, as an environment that is quite forceful, but you just go along with the crowd, then you've, you've compromised who you are and you shouldn't have to do that. You know, retain it, and I think it will be identified and looked on very positively. And um, also just keep enjoying it. And if there's there just so many roles in this industry, that even if, you know, it doesn't have to be that classic trading role, it doesn't have to be... <clears throat> Investment banking, working on MA and um, deals, and thinking it's going to be really long hours. You know, there's there's more than just two roles in this industry. There were so many. I mean, it suits so many different types of characters. Um, and you just, you know, if you get in, I think it is quite limitless. And help with all the fintech and um, side of things and coming into this industry. There was so much out there for you. Um, and just just keep on enjoying it. And if you don't, then sort of pivot into something else. And there will be opportunities out there for you to do that.
0: Fantastic well Katie look it's been excellent talking to you I've very rarely looked at my clock and only only for your time not mine so that's always a good a good indication um I would again a, a big thanks from everyone I really hope our, I've taken a lot away from this and I hope our listeners do as well so yeah massive thanks
1: thank you it's been a pleasure and good luck to everyone out there who um is trying to get into the at the moment good luck